0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zelensky.
1: G'day Diplomates fans. Um, as I flagged in the last long-form episode, we're going to be doing some new... Uh, short form episodes with a new co-host they're going to be hitting sort of on the off fortnight of the monthly deep dive episode so there's going to be content every two weeks for you uh so my co-host is a fantastic brilliant foreign policy expert her name is Hagar Shamali. she's got a ton of foreign policy experience she formerly worked in the Obama administration and is an expert in sanctions policy believe it or not so Hagar gives her Uh, bio at the beginning of this episode, but there's a ton of show notes there to direct you to her work. She, most importantly, is the host of a show called Oh My World, which is an online show. It's a quick uh, sort of five to ten minute whip around the world. Uh, It's very funny, very satirical, but very cutting and insightful about what's happening in the world this week. So our show uh, is going to be a little bit similar to that. We're going to be talking about things that are happening, not so much deep dive into topics, but more about what's happening in the world of foreign affairs. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, Make sure that you're following Hagar's uh, shows and online accounts because they're absolutely fantastic. Enjoy the episode. Okay, welcome to the New Style of Diplomate show. Um, so, obviously, I'm Nisha. I'm the usual person here, but we've got a very special guest and not just a guest, a new co-host for these episodes. Hagar welcome. How are you?
0: Thank you so much.
1: I'm good. I'm doing well. I'm so happy to be here. So, now everyone knows that uh, I'm the least qualified person in foreign policy, certainly on this show. Now you've outqualified me, but I think it'd be useful for everyone just to very quickly. I mean, you've got a massive CV, but maybe just very quickly give a rundown on yourself and also what you're doing now with your current show. Um, bit of cross-promotion, mate.
0: Thank you, thank you. You are too kind. Well, I was in the US government for 12 years working in different national security and public affairs positions. I started out in counter finance, handling the Middle East, uh, working on sanctions and enforcement, anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing, that sort of stuff. And then I moved to the White House to be director for Syria and Lebanon. And that was during the Syria crisis, the beginning of the Syria crisis. That's the Obama administration, amazing. right? Yes, this was under the Obama administration, that's right. Um, and it was an amazing time to be there during the Arab Spring, but um, but difficult also. And the, and the Syria policy was a difficult one to, to to hold up. And so eventually I found this love of communications and uh, public engagement. So I switched to, I went back to the U.S. Treasury Department to become spokesperson there and then finished my government career as spokesperson at the U.S. Mission of the United Nations. And uh, clearly talking is my favorite activity. So from now I host a, a world news show on YouTube called Oh My World, where in 10 minutes, once a week, I cover the top world news stories in a really fun and engaging and easy to understand way with really the goal ultimately to raise awareness about the activities of human rights abusers and dictators, because I genuinely believe that through that awareness and through activism around it, we can make a change for the better.
1: Uh, it's, a, it's a great show, not just because I've been on there, but also because uh, there's a lot of uh, good comedy on there. You dress up as various world leaders and uh, it, it's a very well-produced show, certainly more, uh, more polished than diplomates, but uh, yeah, I it's, it's, definitely invite everyone to check it out. We'll throw that in the show notes now. Let's rip in. We're going to cover off a bunch of things around the world here, what's happening, but I thought a good place to start would be the phone call between Biden and Xi, which was, you know, uh, very well publicized last week. You know, what do you think? Was it a uh, big deal, no big deal, somewhere in between?
0: You know, I I was happy to see it happen and that I was, I was relieved. I'm relieved they have this. Back channel conversation, It's not back channel, really, but I'm I'm relieved that they have this channel where they can talk things out and that they can reach out to each other and where there isn't an official U.S.-China Cold War, right? The the relationship has really never been at a lower point in the last, or oh, at least in in recent history since the since the 1960s or 70s, and um and so it's good that we have that because we don't want. A cold war with them. We don't want military aggression, and you have to have that. But at the same time, uh, I I don't want to oversell it. Right? Nobody agreed to any concrete actions on either side, and I really feel that you know in the United, uh, you saw in the U.S. press this sentiment that tensions have calmed down. But my feeling is that President Xi walked away thinking, "Great, business as usual. I can continue," and you know the U.S. isn't, you know, I haven't ruffled any feathers completely yet on the U.S. side.
1: Well, I thought what was interesting, and I agree with you. I mean, on the one hand, I thought it was, I mean, the last few months has felt like it's been gradually escalating the tensions leading into, you know, obviously we had the the joint uh, communique around climate out of COP, but generally tensions have been ratcheting. Um, so I thought it was a useful way to kind of at least sort of reset that. But I agree, in terms of concrete things that have come out of it, not a great deal. And, you know, as we know, the CCP and Xi particularly tend to just use these things to kind of get platitudes and then hopefully just keep pushing along on, on their path. It was very interesting that uh, in the Chinese readout and in the Chinese media that they made a very big deal about, you know, the United States saying basically that they will hands off on Taiwan and that there was not going to be any military. It certainly perhaps overstating um, President Biden's position in that. So, know, yeah, basically reaffirmed that, you know, that strategic ambiguity, which is, you know, uh, don't support the independent state of Taiwan, but also don't support being, Taiwan being invaded. And so sort of sitting in this weird sort of dance about it. And uh, that was probably the most divergent part, I think, in the two communications. So it was, that was interesting. But I think overall, you're right. You want both leaders speaking. Right? And that is a good place. And uh, whether or not they truly are great friends, uh, as uh, she referred to President Biden, I saw they made a big deal that you yeah, know, Biden wore a red tie because it was she's favorite color and, and she wore a blue tie because a Democrat color. So, I mean, you know, they're playing it up. But uh, I thought overall positive. But what really was there out of it? Perhaps not a great deal. I think all the big strategic great power questions are going to remain. Right. Um, yeah, now, I mean, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, you know, you're right about the. I remember very well having been on the inside of the White House that the. Details like the colors of the tie are deliberately planned out. Right. That is not a coincidence. Um, and um, and that's fine. Right. It's fine. I mean, the old friend thing, you know, the press here made a big deal of it, of President Xi calling Biden, his old friend. That to me doesn't mean anything. That's banter. Right. It's right. And it's it's and it does matter. It's not that words don't matter. Words do matter. We know that. Right. President that's President Trump used to talk a lot like that. And it, it bothered us a lot when he would talk to people like President Putin like that, right? But, um, hey, great Putin, right, <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. Um, but you know, I thought that the, the press harped a little too much on that. The Taiwan thing, like you said, is really is really interesting because the Chinese press came out afterward saying that President Xi made all these strong statements, saying you know that uh, he allegedly told Biden not to play with fire or that he would get burned, and not. Not to divide the world into these alliances and blocks, or that he would cause disaster around the world. And, you know, who knows if he actually said that in the conversation? I would find that hard to believe. But you'd still see China trying to come away from this, telling their population, at least, or the region or the world, that they're not going to be told how to behave when it comes to the issue of Taiwan specifically. And so that issue still does concern me a lot.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, the the issues and the questions around Taiwan are only going to become sharper going forward, regrettably. Now, um, staying with China, but switching to their domestic scenario, uh, what do we make of the disappearing Chinese tennis player Peng Shui uh, who uh, uh, made a troubling allegation that she'd been sexually assaulted by a senior uh, CCP official and essentially has been disappeared or, you know, Gone off the grid, then posted a post, someone posted via uh, Chinese uh, uh, state media saying that she was fine and everything's okay, And basically almost like a hostage style video now being posted on Twitter. What do we make of all this?
0: I'm so glad we're talking about this. Um, I wanted to talk about this on my show last week. And there were so many, you know, I have a, I have a shit list. There were too many shitty actors right. that um, I didn't end up putting them on my shit list, the Chinese regime on my shit list for this. But um, this story, there's so many issues with it. So first, uh, for, for those of you catching up on this story, she was, she posted Peng Shui, who's, who um, is a world renowned tennis player, uh, posted on the Chinese social media site Weibo a while ago that she had been sexually assaulted and forced into a sexual relationship with the former Chinese vice premier. And immediately the post was taken down and she was not just was the post taken down, but her social media presence online in China was also disappeared. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy, right? So the Chinese went wow. scrubbed the internet basically so that you couldn't find any mention of her inside China and then and then she physically disappeared, too. right? Nobody heard of her. And then about a month later is when suddenly you had individuals saying, "Well, where is she?" Right? And that was that became the social media hashtag. Where is Peng Shui? And so the I mean the the angles of this of concern run the gamut. First, you have the the issue that you have an allegation that was swept under the rug. Yeah. And the struggle that Chinese women are facing, Domestically, in their own Me Too movement in right. China, to have these men in power, um, and 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 maybe not just men, but mostly men in power, so. be held accountable for sexual assault um, and sexual harassment, right? So, and that's been a struggle in general. And this is this is the epitome of it, right? Because she's a public figure. You also have what I found quite interesting is um, the fact that. For the first time in a long time, you've seen this global public pressure and public commentary rising. And today, Sunday, the day that Misha and I are recording this, uh, the Chinese government has allegedly shown her in a video what? saying, here she is. You know, OK, OK, well, she's, here, she's safe. And no one can say that she truly is safe. Um, or that uh, that she's acting on her own will and that she has any kind of freedom whatsoever. But the fact is that they are feeling the pressure from from the public, and so and which, as someone lo- for me who calls for activism, that's exciting at least. But I am still concerned right. also about her freedom and her uh, and her decision making. I hate that this was swept under the rug, this allegation. Um, but uh, it's and it's it's just it's concerning for so many reasons.
1: First so of now many of course, reasons. like this, you know. Peng's not the first uh, uh, Chinese uh, ethnic national to go missing um, in China when uh, they do something that is sort of um, uh, contrary to the interests of the party or the regime, but this is sort of blown up enormously because of her high profile, um, which one of the most interesting parts of this uh, I think we should talk about it, is that the World Tennis Association um, has actually said you know, if she's not released effectively and turned up safe and back living a normal life, that they'll they'll be withdrawing tennis tournaments um, from China, which I think is actually quite extraordinary because up until now, most, certainly in sport, but just generally in entertainment, business, most tend to take a knee um, to the CCP's uh, will, right? And they look at what happened with the NBA when uh, you yeah, had the Houston Rockets uh, coach come out and talk about Uyghurs and next thing... Uh, the CCP banning the Houston Rockets and threatening to ban the NBA from, from having access to the Chinese market and you know, he was forced to apologize. The whole thing buckled. This is a different thing and I think that's actually a, a shift. Um, so what, what do you make about that?
0: I, you, you, know, you hit the nail on the head on this one because one of the things that a lot of human rights activists often argue is that if businesses and companies and entertainers and multinational corporations, if they agree to not bend toward the the desires of these dictators, right, like the Chinese one, like the Saudi one, like, right, I mean, the Russian one, right, all around the world. If they, if they hold their ground on their values and they say, you know what, your market isn't worth us giving up our value. This is a big problem in Hollywood, huge problem in Hollywood, where a lot of the, the Chinese government will not give Access to its market if the movies don't portray China in a good light, um, if some in some cases if they don't film there. I mean, it's it's horrific, right? And they bend to it because they want that market. And seeing, I never really thought that the World Tennis Federation would be the first one to give the middle finger to the Chinese regime, right. but they are, and it's awesome. And I hope that that continues. And I, one of the things I, you know, that I'm I'm interested to see. How this goes is not only how others will react, but also um, what this means for the February Winter Olympics. That's not right. hard, right? The Absolutely. February Winter Olympics being right it's held in Beijing. You've had people come out before, human rights activists, some political officials in the United States, to call to boycott it, and that hasn't really taken off, right? You've and I wonder if this will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. It could be, yeah. Others jump on this.
1: No, I think that's an interesting point because I actually personally think. It, um, That given all the human rights violations, and and sometimes you're right, sometimes it is a particular incident that captures people's imaginations or breaks, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. But I think it would be scandalous to let uh, the CCP have a total propaganda victory uh, with an Olympics in the world there, a big celebration, how great is everything uh, in China, no problems, right? Because the thing about sport is not just, it's not, you know, sport is a business and it's entertainment, but it's also, always pride itself on human rights activism um and so you know one of the things i think was bad uh, globally was letting putin have that big propaganda victory with the fifa soccer world cup in 2018 there and everyone's like oh how good's russia right and so i think the world really should be thinking about how we do or do not allow the ccp to use um to use the olympics as a propaganda tool i think that would be an enormous detriment if nothing is done about whether it be Peng, but also Uyghurs generally, Tibet, Hong Kong, Taiwan. I mean, there's a lot of issues at you know, surveillance of uh, of uh, Chinese nationals at home and abroad. Like there's so many areas, right? So I think you're right. I think we need to be talking about, um, you know, what we do with you know, from boycott to various other things and also putting pressure on businesses, um, you know coca-cola sponsoring the olympics like in beijing i mean is that the right thing to do right so um you know i think questions like that need to be raised and i think that they definitely yet again um ccp overreach tends to uh, uh fuel the arguments here more so than activism on our side right um now switching gears to the, the other great autocratic regime of the world uh, the russians uh so Vladimir Putin, sort of out of nowhere, relatively unannounced, and performed a test in space shooting down a satellite. What the hell do we make of that?
0: You know, they, the I made fun of this on my show last week, pretending that, and I did an impersonation, which, as you know, I love to do the, I love to impersonate these leaders and 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 inject some political satire into this, because they shot, they tested their anti-missile, System, their anti-satellite system, yeah. and tested this missile and shot down an old Soviet spy satellite. And it ended up, according to the United States government, creating 1500 small pieces of debris in outer space. And the risk of that is that those small pieces of debris fly at really great speeds and they can cause great damage to the International Space Station, is international right you have russians on board the international space space station who had to take um apparently they had to take some kind of cover i don't really know what that means when you're in the actual you know module or whatever it's called the the, the machine the thing that is orbiting but anyway i think that's um, a technical term um,
1: yeah i but... <laughs> <laughs>
0: Science was never my strong suit.
1: Listen, you're, you're more qualified on space than I am. So let's uh, let's go with whatever <laughs> the, the module spacey thing. Yeah,
0: yeah that that thing that, that they're in. Right. But um, and uh, it threatens satellites, obviously. And so we we the United States come out uh, angry about it with all these statements. And the Russians respond saying, you know, what's the big deal? This was, you're over-exaggerating this. You're making a big deal out of nothing. And so I joked in my show that, you know, it felt like this was a last minute decision that some guy was just like, hey, like, look at my gun. Let's see if it works. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but the thing here is that not only are they endangering space and that is a real issue right space debris and space junk is a real problem it has been for a long time and so they should have known this um but it also and nobody really talked about this i think but the russians are not fools it sends a strong message about their capabilities totally right
1: this is about sort of saying we can blind you right because i mean space is a battlefield in the sense that people see it as a way to Uh, asymmetrically disable the other side, right? If you could take down, for example, all of the United States GPS satellites, you essentially disable its communication, its ability to coordinate its uh, military assets. So that's what that statement's about. It's not just we can shoot down our own old satellite. It is we could shoot down any satellite, right? You know what's funny too is that
0: from a timing perspective is – you know why do they need to make that message now? And yeah, the time wanna, is
1: interesting, right?
0: Yeah, I don't want to over-speculate here because there isn't, there hasn't been anything between the United States and Russia. Um, well, we are. Uh, there are always issues, right? Most of the issues have been in the cyberspace, um, but it is interesting now that you mention it that this comes right now as the world is accusing Russia of being behind the decision by Belarus, Belarus's dictator, Alexander Lukashenko, yeah. to import basically uh, migrants to deliberately bring them in order to cause problems to, toward the EU. Right. To actually to use humans as a weapon. And so I wonder if the decision making on the Russia end, and I am speculating here, but but like I said, the Russians aren't fools. A distraction. And while they may behave is Yeah, they may behave as though, like, oh, the United States are making such a big deal. That's PR, right? They they are strategic in their in their maneuvers, and perhaps they were trying to show the world, you know, don't don't mess with us. We have these capabilities. We can bring down a satellite on um, in a moment's notice without you being aware uh, on any day that we'd like, right?
1: No, and I think so. That's absolutely right. But I actually think you just touched on that really interesting issue that you know. It's amazing what the Russians are trying to do is, you know, through interference in elections, through misinformation, disinformation campaigns, they're trying to sow discord, right? And so they very acutely, they study politics as well as anybody uh, in a democratic Western nation. They understand the politics of uh, refugees, which can be very vexed um, and can trigger a lot of nationalistic responses. So the fact that um, they are essentially trying to create refugee crises. You know, we obviously had the big one with Syria in 2015 and all the questions around, you know, Hungary put up essentially a wall so no one's coming in here and pushing people along and all that sort of stuff and the dynamics of where where should refugees be settled and how and by whom. And obviously Merkel brought in a million and that was very controversial for her at the time. Um, The fact that they are now not they're essentially creating a push factor um, rather than it. Yeah. That is quite extraordinary. Uh, And I think that's something that we need to watch very carefully because they're trying to cultivate this sort of domestic discord around that question. Right.
0: Yeah. It's, you know, the thing about this story is that it's, it's almost like the, the worst that the worst that a government could bring all around. Right. So you've got, um, you know, just to catch up on the on the Belarus Poland crisis, and and how and what's happening there. So you've got Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko, who has flown in thousands of of individuals, mostly Iraqi Kurds, who genuinely were seeking to leave and genuinely looking to migrate. Migrate, right? And this is the worst part about. It. So he's using vul, a vulnerable population. Bringing them in, and the EU had all this analysis showing the flight patterns and showing that the number of flights coming from the Middle East had over more than doubled over the last month or so, and so it was a very deliberate attempt by Lukashenko, and he and the the selling point to them was come to Belarus as a gateway to the EU, right? And now he's using wow. these humans, these vulnerable humans, as a weapon, and Poland and the EU is. There, and, and by the way, and it's not just Poland, but Lithuania and and, and others are, are threatened as well, any of the border, any, any that share the border with Belarus. And they've kept their, you know, they've put their foot down and they have to put their foot down because these aren't actually migrants that came, trekked, you know, trekked their way, found their way and and were trying to come to the EU. They were, they're being used as a pawn in a chess game. And so it's horrific all around, but this is not—you know, its not a new thing. The Turkish president, Turkish President Erdogan, has also done this. When he gets angry at the EU when they punish him, when they get angry at his activity in the Eastern Mediterranean, when he looks to punish the Greeks, he does the same thing. He unleashes boatloads of migrants to Greece, to other parts of the EU, and so it's—it's—it's it's, it's kind of like taking a page out of the playbook. It's so ugly, and and how you deal with it from here. The only way that you can deal with it, I think. I don't know. I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Is that is that you ha- you can't let the migrants in? It's sad and it's horrific. But if you do, it's only going to encourage this behavior further.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, it's it's, it's an element of irony. I mean, it's horrific what they're doing. I mean, using people as as weapons is. Disgraceful uh, and desperate people at that. The, the, the politics of borders are extremely vexed. Um, you know, certainly in Australia, we had for a very long time a lot of war, you know, political warfare around um, uh, refugee politics. And in the end, um, Labor essentially has adopted the Liberal Party policies, which is that we endorse turnbacks. So um, w- Labor supports having a larger intake of, of refugees, but ultimately. The consensus now is you can't arrive to Australia via boat, typically from Indonesia. Those boats will be turned back. And the reason why, fundamentally, people will... It's its interesting. When migration is disorderly, support for migration falls enormously, right? So, you know, you look at the border politics in the United States, you look at these refugee crises in Europe. Um, if people feel that the migration is, not, is, is disorderly and people are sort of pouring in, it becomes very, very difficult to manage that politics, but also becomes very easy for bad faith actors, you know, right wing nationalists, right wing ethno nationalists to whip up people's fear on that. So really, if you support migration, the lesson for me, when I certainly the Australian lesson, but I think the lesson globally is if you support migration and you want to support um, helping refugees, you need to have orderly migration and then you can look to increase your intake on a humanitarian basis and take people in. But it has to be orderly. People will not support disorderly migration. It makes people feel like the country is not being well-administered. It makes people feel threatened. And fundamentally governments get judged on security and making people feel safe at the beginning, right? It's a Maslow question. So if you can't facilitate that, you can't facilitate anything. And so, I mean, you know, we can make our moral judgments about it, but fundamentally to me, it's like, look, I'm a pragmatist. If we want to help as many people as we can, we need to build as much of a consensus as we can and therefore if, if that is how we know people are going to feel about it then we should try to you know do both keep a secure border and make sure that we are generous in our humanitarian program so that's you know that's kind of the lesson i think certainly from a Australian point of view and a latent point of view which we fought a lot of elections on this question and, and and lost those those questions so i think um i think that's sort of the way that uh, those that have a humanitarian heart should approach it on a political basis now switching to slightly less high profile, but certainly another autocratic regime in an area that you're an expert in, Iran. So we've got these talks coming up in Vienna in November, uh, later this month or in a week's time or so. You know, what are you expecting to come out of that?
0: Well, right now, um, the United States has not said whether or not they're going to participate in the talks. I find it hard to believe if they don't send some kind of expert um, at some level because they're still not doing direct talks between the United States and Iran. But even if the US doesn't participate, then, and then perhaps that might be even better because then the the Europeans can kind of try and work uh, their magic that they believe they have with the Iranian government. And the Iranian government is extremely sophisticated in its negotiation. Um, I myself was on the other side of the Iran negotiations when I was in the government, when I was spokesperson for Treasury, and I watched them maneuver those talks. I mean, you I don't want to throw my own government under the bus. We were pretty good as well. But but those guys know what they're doing when it comes to negotiating. If you get into a room with them, you have to really be prepared right. that they're going to play hardball and that they're going to drag things out as long as they can, even if you're the one with the leverage. and. So for the talks coming up, I don't expect them to move the needle much um, because the Europeans are not the ones that hold the cards. The United States is the one that holds the cards in terms of the sanctions. And the sanctions are what the Iranian government wants lifted. Um, and and so now listen, I am a sanctions nerd. I worked in sanctions <laughs> for a long time in the U.S. government. I, uh, I've had people tell me before that I've never met a sanction I didn't like. That's not entirely true. There are sanctions I think are unnecessary um, or, or overused. Um, with the Iran sanctions, though, but sanctions do work. They can work. Right. And the thing that I always tell people is they don't work until they do. Right? People will always say like, "Oh, they're not working," and then they all automatically they all of a sudden they do. At the end of the day, sanctions really do. They they can affect leaders and regimes. And in this case, they are a big source of motivation for the Iranian government to enter into negotiations. So my expectation ultimately from these talks is just that the Europeans are able to get more steady talks going, but we are far from some kind of deal. Um, The best that we can hope for from these talks is that the Europeans solicit a Um, an official agreement from the Iranian government to cease uh, any enrichment of uranium to stop its nuclear program in its tracks at the moment in order to allow talks to take place. But I still think that that's a high bar. I don't know if that will happen.
1: One of the challenges, obviously, in negotiating with the Iranians is they also know that this is not a bipartisan consensus. Obviously, you had the Obama administration's position, which was in reverse by Trump and now Biden's sort of shifting it back towards that. But, of course, if you're the Iranians and you know that there's not consensus, you can almost play for time um, if you think there's going to be changes in whether or not there'll be changes in the presidential, perhaps changes in the House, et cetera, right? So I definitely think they would be having one eye on that. Now, we're starting to run out of time, but I do want to get uh, one last topic in because uh, next time we speak, the Democracy Summit will have been held um so it's due on the 10th and 11th of december here in dc where what do you expect if anything to come from that i mean i'm hearing mixed reports i kind of think it's a great thing to be doing it's kind of on brand for biden which is that you know america's back in the game back in the alliance game talking about democratic values um i'm hearing around the place that you know it's going to devolve into kind of motherhood statements the other kind of interesting thing about it is the invite list so start off as a democracy summit, and then it's kind of like, okay, well, uh, are we going to invite places, is Singapore a democracy because obviously they've got a stake in the Indo-Pacific and a concern about CCP autocracy? Vietnam, you know, So there's sort of these interesting questions. Or you got, you know, Hungary, Poland, um, you know, so Turkey, and so like, you know, there's these sort of greyish uh, type of uh, actors. Um, so I suppose those two questions are, you know, who's coming, but also what do you expect to come out of it?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I'll be honest with you. When I first heard of the democracy summit altogether, to me, it felt as um, it felt like an opportunity for PR and and, of course, to reaffirm this central tenet of the Biden administration's foreign policy. It is an important central tenet. I agree with it 100 percent. And we know that because the nations that are democratic have greater prosperity. Have better economies. Their people are obviously happier. They have less domestic um, conflict, less domestic issues, right? We know this. All of this is known, and so keep making it a priority makes sense. And frankly, to be honest with you, you wouldn't need a democracy summit if organizations like the United Nations did their job, right? right? I mean, I'm not saying the UN has to be in the democracy-making business, but the fact is the matter that they're the fact of the matter is that they're not affecting change in peace and security and human rights and stability the way they are supposed to be doing because it's because you have autocratic regimes that take advantage of the platform the United Nations gives them, right? So, okay, so you've got this democracy summit. So on one hand, I think it does present an opportunity for, okay, great, strong statements. And hopefully on the margins of the democracy summit, the behind the scenes work is where I hope the real the real work happens. So for example, an example would be if you have groups of nations that behind the scenes meet up and say, hey, you know what? What's happening in Myanmar is a real problem. And so we need to work together to ensure that the military there doesn't have any oxygen to breathe, right? We're all gonna impose sanctions together where none of us are gonna give the military junta um, a platform to talk about, right? That's the type of uh, wow. opportunity I see. Belarus is another opportunity, right? Maybe you'll have, it's an opportunity for and a space for nations to work together and that is a big piece of this to identify key issues and say okay let's get creative how can we do this together because the united states is not going to do it alone right yeah. um, so that's what i see i don't so but the thing is i think it'll be a little hidden and we may actually see the outcomes later on but the, the at the actual summit i don't expect that many deliverables right it's the the foundation it might create
1: I actually, Yeah, I agree. I think getting people talking is a good thing. Also, I'm a momentum guy, so I'd be looking if I'm them going, okay, what are a couple of little things that we could do collectively to get something going, whether it's Myanmar, whether it's working towards something the Beijing Olympics, whatever it is, getting some little cascade of action happening um, and so that way you can start to build a bit of an agenda of momentum. Now, as ever, because this is my show and because I do stupid things on my show, we're going to do our uh, – we're going to uh, create a – we normally have a barbecue question on the uh, long-form episodes, but – you and I have decided that we're going to do a uh, what's the John Dory, which is you know strange shorthand for what's the story um, with a particular topic. So Warren H, now i have picked a stupid one because at the moment I can't open a social media account or speak to anybody without hearing about Taylor Swift's Red Scarf. So I'm going to ask you what is the John Dory with Taylor Swift's Red Scarf because I feel like this is a global phenomenon that I went to bed one night and woke up and I can't open anything without hearing about it. This ten minute video. So what he's doing?
0: You know my own my own researchers who are Gen Z and in college, and um, and I love that because they have their ear to the ground on on the issues affecting this generation. They were they also encouraged me to talk about this on my show, and I didn't <laughs> end up talking about it because you know I don't know why Taylor Swift did this video. I don't know what her motivation was. Other than I, I actually really genuinely believe it that. When she first did this song, from what I understand, when she first did this song that mentions this scarf that was taken by this ex-boyfriend and not returned, right? I don't know the exact quote. Yeah, it's meant to be be
1: Jake Gyllenhaal, right? Apparently, this is the whole... Allegedly.
0: Right. Yes, She's never confirmed that. And I think that's part of the excitement around it is like, who is this guy? Right, there's a whole whodunit dollar to it? it. Yes, the thing that I thought was amazing, though, aside from the fact that it just it just you know broke the internet, is that Dionne Warwick, um, right? Who is a huge, just amazing American artist right. and and older, um, she came out and and said, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal, give the scarf back, or and I'll pay for the the shipping, and <laughs>
1: so oh. and,
0: you know. It's ridiculous.
1: Oh, man. Jay, I mean, if you
0: have her scarf, return it. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's interesting because the whole thing about, I mean, like, she's re released this album because, uh, you know, she was in a dispute. Taylor Swift was in a dispute with her record label, which is, I think, because she's done the right thing, re recording everything essentially because they wouldn't give her a master tapes. But now it's actually become about this scarf. It's probably like a $50 scarf, but nevertheless. Anyway, look. nothing ceases to amaze me in this country from time to time, but there it is. I mean, everyone is talking about, not about Biden and she, but about uh, Jake and Jill, and so Jake and Taylor. Um, Now, what do you got for me, mate?
0: The internet is a wondrous place. A friend of mine, um, much to my dismay, highlighted to me that Greta Thunberg has 13 million followers on Instagram or Twitter, I don't know, whereas Kylie Jenner, has 242 million right. and that as somebody who works, as you know, in foreign policy and activism and human rights, that was a little bit disheartening, <laughs> but you know, it is what it is. Um, so I've got this crazy thing on my mind that, you know, that I heard from our friends, Tommy Vitor and Ben Rhodes, they covered this on their uh, Posse of the World last week and this blew my mind, but this this actually happened a few weeks ago, where American conservative author and uh, com- political commentator Candace Owens uh, went on air and and called for an invasion of Australia because alleged because apparently she felt that we need to quote free Australians from the COVID nineteen precautions, and so I would love to hear your view on this. Um you know if you want to give a a a response back to Candace always now's your chance
1: Well <laughs> f- f- firstly um I, uh, I I saw the episode, of the title of the episode, I'd obviously seen the comments and I kind of rolled my eyes at them, but I, I saw the episode, The Case for Invading Australia, so I couldn't help but tweet at them saying, what's doing, guys? <laughs> and they were all uh, nice enough to respond. And so there was a little bit of banter online about it. I mean, I've been joking, you know, that i have summoning the Kangaroo uh, National Guard um, in terms of uh, summoning a defence against uh, Tommy and, uh, and Ben, but... Look, in terms of these comments, actually, one of the things that's been very interesting in my time here, um, a lot of people coming up to me, uh, you know, essentially saying, oh, Australia is like under an autocratic kind of regime and uh, how's everything back there? And of course, you know, we had a bit of a, we had a second round of lockdowns because we had the Delta variant and we were behind our vaccinations, but it, it, it's amazing how Australia and that whole thing has fallen into, you know, this broader problem of right-wing disinformation, misinformation, and that anti-vax movement and all those things that are coalescing together. Australia become a bit of a meme in that space. And so quite extraordinary that you would have a, you know, someone in a major, you know, news network in this country talking about invading a treaty ally because we are so oppressed now. look, um, the lockdown stressed a lot of people. I mean, I left midway through uh, to come as part of my full break because it was pre-arranged. But you know, it went on for a fairly long time, and it wasn't great. People were, frankly, shitty about it, and 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 rightly so because our prime minister had not ordered enough vaccines, and rather than rolling it out, he did what we were calling a stroll out. It was uh, far too slow. But um, you know, Australia traditionally has very very high levels of. Uh, uh, acceptance of vaccines and we actually now are in I think we're close to 95% for people being fully vaccinated which I think put us in the top couple around the world so whilst we're behind we've kind of shot through and done very well in terms of getting that and you know there's been a kind of a lot of focus on protests and there have been some protests but they've been relatively small but there is again an interesting bizarre thing happening and I talked about this uh, in an episode of uh, of the full diplomate show with uh, Claire Wardle from First Draft News talking about this um, uh, anti-vax misinformation thing. But one of the things that's most interesting to me is watching right-wing Nazi psychos and left-wing wellness people that are kind of, you know, oh, you don't need vaccinations, you need to eat more capsicum or something, right? Those people kind of coalescing into one singularity. Um, and it's very bizarre. It's one of the more bizarre things I've noticed on the internet. And, uh, you know, I, I think... You know it one of the things that's regrettable is the way that the internet and uh you know right-wing extremists in australia it's a relatively small movement but uh using this to kind of try to pollute the discourse um and so it's it's definitely there it, it, but uh you know i think typically we would have had 99 vaccinations without a 95 but you know it's a, it's a small growing and relatively extreme movement that we need to watch now I'm going to leave it there because um, I think that's a good place to finish. But Hagar, thank you for coming on. I look forward to our next conversation and um, obviously everybody check out the show. Oh, my world. It's very good. Very fun. Much uh, easier and more entertaining and shorter viewing than diplomates, but um, we will uh, enjoy many more of these. I hope as we get into our rhythm going forward.
0: Thank you so much, Misha. This was such a fun conversation. I can't wait for our future podcast episodes. Um, and thank you to everyone who uh, is listening and who subscribes to Oh My World. I, appreciate, I thank you in advance. It means the world. And uh, I can't wait for the future conversation.
1: Thanks, mate. Take care. G'day, diplomats fans. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Big thanks to Hagar for uh donating her time to my show really really appreciate it do check out Oh My World and the rest of Hagar's work it's absolutely brilliant if you haven't already and this is the first time listening to the show because you're coming across from Hagar's bigger audience than mine please rate and review the show these episodes are going to be called the Chinwag episodes um, and the uh, the longer form episodes are going to be more that diplomate style where I sit down with an expert for you know over an hour and we, we dig into a media topic so I do hope you enjoyed it Uh, A new episode with a really, really big guest covering a really important topic will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for that one. I think you will enjoy it. Otherwise, thanks so much for uh, listening. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time.
0: You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal
1: Productions, producer Jim Mintz.